0: We're going to see if the head mic works. If you can't hear a word that I'm saying, give me some kind of a wave to make sure that I'm connected with everybody. Let me see. I got eyes looking at me. Yes? Is this going to work? All right, let's do it. Absolutely love that we have three different road family churches in the house this morning. Remember with the preaching of the word, it is not just information, it is transformation. Transformation. I'm going to speak to your mind and your ears, but work with me to get it in your heart and then out of your life when you walk out of here. All right, three churches. Here's the three different ways that we phrase the big idea behind the life of our churches. Melrose is this, a church built for Bostonians. Restoration Road is this, a church that exists to see people restored by the gospel. You, you see that in there, right? Restoration Road, restored. All right. And then 7 Mile Houston is this. A church that exists to embody and declare God's redemptive story to every Houstonian. Kid, that's a lot of words for a mission statement right there. Does everybody feel the missional drive, conviction that shapes the soul of the churches that we are planting By the way, that we have thought about, here's who we are. Here's why we exist. We are committed to planting strong churches, not just so that we have good churches to go to, but so that outsiders can be swept inside this glorious life of gospel grace. That's what we're going for together. Now, I know that Restoration Road prays for gospel advance. I have seen your prayer meetings posted on social media. I know that Seven Mile Road in Houston prays for gospel advance. In fact, they built their house churches so that that first week of every month is given to seeking the Lord for His grace. And I know that we pray toward this end in the life of the Melrose Church. We gave you a 10 ways to pray sheet for the year. The first one on there was... Pray for Bostonians. And I want you to see the four ways that we're asking you to pray because they're going to connect right to the story that I'm going to tell you. Here's the first one. Pray for dissatisfaction with the status quo. The two words that we use to describe the people that we're sent to are ungospeled and all set. Ungospeled and all set. This means when you talk to your average person around here and you say, hey, do you know about the gospel? They go, gospel? What's that? Never mind. I'm all set. My neighbors who live across the street from me, love them, have gotten to know them. Here's their life. Two great jobs, one beautiful home, updated every square inch. This refrigerator talks to you. No children to worry about, but they do have a dog. And two late model cars. They drink a lot of Dunkin' Donuts. They watch a lot of Red Sox. They go on a lot of vacations. Her mom lives close if she's ever in the meal for like a good home-cooked meal. They've got it. They vote Democrat. They're all set. They are living the Massachusetts dream. What more could there be? I'm all set. We need the spirit To be at work in your life and in my life helping us see something's missing from the American dream. Something is not what I was made for if this is all that there is. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? Pray for dissatisfaction. Then we say keep praying and pray for conviction of sin. In other words, move your prayer to... Not just something's not okay, but I am not okay. Uh, Bostonian culture exists to silence your conscience, to downplay any thought of the conviction of your sin. It does it through distraction. I saw an interview with the CEO of um, Netflix, and he said, We're not even competing with other media outlets anymore. We're competing with sleep. We're trying to figure out how we can get people to not even sleep. That's our dream at Netflix. Now, if that's what they're going for, imagine the effect on prayer or Bible reading or life in community if it's just next episode, next episode, next episode, next episode. Distracted. We could talk about deception. We could talk about flattery. The point is this. Until the Spirit breaks through, And you start to see all that I have done, all that I have left undone, all that I have thought, all that I have said, all that's been driving me is not okay. I need a remedy. We pray toward that end, and it's the grace of God, the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. All right, then we say, pray for this. Number three, opportunities to love and gospel. Every Bostonian Jesus gives us loved and gospeled well. That's the dream of our church. Jeremy Stewart is planting seven mile road down in Hyannis in about a year and a half. And so I went to Hyannis with him and I drove the streets of his hood just to see if I was like saying, yes, this kid can plant this church in this city. He grew up down there. He told me over breakfast, I was 21 and a half years old before I knew a Christian met a Christian, heard the Christian gospel, 21 and a half. I was drinking Sam Adams before anybody had told me about Jesus. So our aim through church planting is to not let that happen in these cities, that these folks stand before Jesus and say, I was loved, I was gospeled by these people who sacrificed so that churches could get planted. All right. Is this going out on you? No? Okay. Last one that we pray for is this. Gospel wakefulness. That somehow, through the miracle of the Spirit, some folks who we love would come alive to God. Would you do that work? All right, today i got this beautiful story to tell you, and it shows us how this whole thing happened in the life of our mother Rahab. She was an outsider to God's grace, and she got brought inside. I want you to keep two things in mind as I talk to you. One is a personal application. Keep these words in mind. I am Rahab. This is me, or if it's not, this needs to be me. Have that in your mind as I talk to you. And the second thing is this. There are Rahabs everywhere. That's missional application. Keep that in your mind. Does our church work for the Rahabs around us? All right, we're preaching through the biblical book of Hebrews. In the 11th chapter, he runs down this list of the heroes of the faith. Have you ever played this list game with people? So we have this mission team in from Orlando. We're having dinner last night. And uh, one of the kids says, hey, I want to hear everybody's list of their top five Disney movies. I was like, of course you would say that coming from Orlando. So everybody started running through them, right? Lion King, Frozen, Tangled. Some kid was like, Brother Bear, Brother Bear. That was it for me. The Emperor's New Groove. uh, I was like, man, you've been in Orlando too long. A list. If we were to do Bostonian super bands, who's on that list? Aerosmith. Aerosmith. Dropkick Murphys. New kids on the block. Steph's waving at me back there. This is what the writer's doing in the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews. He's giving us the heroes of our faith. Now, notice I did not say superheroes, right? We got the super crossed out on the poster. These were just regular people, no superpowers, not perfect people. They put on their jeans. And then their Jordans, like everybody else, they got totally infuriated at rotaries, just like everybody else. They could not find their keys, just like everybody else. But they believed God. They threw their whole lot in on obedience to God. That's what set them apart. Today we get Rahab. It's just one sentence. Here it is. By faith, Rahab the prostitute didn't perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. All right, let me do the back story so that that beautiful verse can just crush on your soul. In the older covenant, God's huge promise to his people was that he would give them a land, a sweet place for them to live in where they would build homes and build culture And it would be the best possible place for them to live. Think if we could take everything that's awesome about Bostonian culture, but then pick it up and put it right between Maui and Kauai in the Hawaiian climate, and then give it Texas taxes. (laughs) This would be the best possible place to live. Bostonian culture, but the Hawaii breeze and Texas taxes. I'm in on that. That was the promised land. A land flowing with milk and honey is how you'll read it in the Bible. Um, For us, we would translate that like, in the summertime, streams of richy slush would just pour down from the mountains. And coffee culottes would just hang in on tree branches. And there's Chick-fil-A's everywhere, and they're open on Sundays in the promised land. It's the perfect place to live. That's how the Bible wants you to think about it. After years of wandering through the desert, now's the point in the story where Joshua is going to lead them into the promised land. You got it? All right, one problem, big problem. There's already people in the promised land. They've already built houses and cities and cultures. The Canaanites, because it's the land of Canaan, And not just houses, cities, and cultures, but godless ones. Take your breath away how evil these cities were. Every form of sexual perversion, every form of social injustice was there. They would take their newborn babies and they would cut their throats on altars of worship to their gods. Decadence and immorality. This is who was in the land And God was going to put a stop to these practices. Um, My best example for this would be, have you read or watched Hunger Games? If you're a reading person, did you read it? If you're a movie person, did you watch it? So about 40 pages into this book, my heart was like, oh, what kind of a culture, a society takes their children and pits them against each other in battles to the death? That is wrong, wrong. And you feel your heart going, I wish someone would stop this. And that's why you get behind, behind Katniss Everdeen and you're right. I want her and her crew from section 12 to take the Capitol down and put an end to this injustice. Did that happen in your heart? Then you would have been good with the story that we're going to see. God, who is so patient, waited hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years for someone in authority, with influence, in these cities to say, we are done with living this way. No more injustice. No more godlessness. We're finished. Or if not, the leaders about an uprising from the people saying, we're done living this way. But nobody would do it. Ten generations, 400 years, all set with our sin. And so now, like with Noah and the flood, like with Egypt and the plagues, God is going to execute justice like a good judge on these cities. What's very unique in this story, it's the only place that it happens in the redemptive history of the Bible, is he was going to use his people as his means of justice, If you have any questions about holy war or what that was or how it worked, please feel totally free to ask that question. But that's what's coming. All right. What was the first city right on the other side of the Jordan River? The first city in the land. It was the city of Jericho. Super well fortified city. Double walls around it. Breaking into this place would be like harder to get into a Hollywood celebrity's house, you know, in LA. They're all for open borders and against guns, but they got armed security and like 11 fences around the mansion. That was the city of Jericho, Helms Deep. That's what this was. Nobody's getting in there. So Joshua needs to do a reconnaissance of the city. How high are these walls? Is there a weakness? What's the mood of the people? So he grabs two of his superstar guys and he says, you're going to go be spies and check the city out. You know Mission Impossible? So at this point, if your Bible had sound effects, that's what would happen in here. And the spies get decked out in black and they put eye black on their faces. They literally swim through the Jordan River in the middle of the night. Then they sleep in the bushes. And then as soon as the guard turns his head, they run into the front gate of the city and they're going to spy the place out. Inside of Jericho is a woman named Rahab and she is a prostitute. Now there's no surprise when we read that, right? She fits her city to a T. She's perfect for this place. Up to this point in her life, she is all in on Jericho culture, all in. She is complicit as well as a victim of its sin. Her living is, I'm going to commoditize sex for money. That's how she makes a living. Utter disregard for God's law. Utter disregard for the sacredness of the marriage bed. And she's all set in this life. But then Rahab hears about this God Yahweh and how his people are about to arrive in the land. And she hears their story. And she hears about how His grace to them led them out of slavery in Egypt. And she hears about this God's power in sending plagues and splitting the Red Sea. And she hears about this God's holiness. One of His laws is, you shall not commit adultery. And she hears about this God's beauty, how he restores dignity to people. And she hears about this God's humaneness, the way that he has built a culture that is humane. And her heart begins to race when she hears about this God. And dissatisfaction starts to grow in her soul. And conviction about her life and her sin starts to bubble up to the surface. Who is it that these two spies happen to connect with? They're in the city, and they happen to find the door of Rahab. Her house was on the edge of the city. It was actually between the two walls. Being that the spies were like sneaking in and out of the shadows, it's no surprise that they would be on the edge of the city. It's also possible that because of her occupation, her house was like one of those motels on Route 1, you know? Jacuzzi tub, free cable television. This was probably Rahab's house. By the providence of God, the spies end up at her door. She knows right away, these dudes are not from around here. You know how that happens sometimes? When I preached in Houston, Cali and I went to the mall... And everybody was like taking a step to the side and being like, what in the world? Those two are not from around here. When I was a freshman in college, second semester, the temperature dropped to like 25. And I had a 750 a.m. class. And I went to class in a short leaf shirt, just like this, like I was from New England. And my buddy Steve Pierce, who was from South Texas, was like, kid, you must be from Boston. He was in a triple fat goose jacket with earmuffs on and gloves just to walk to class. He knew this kid is not from around here. It's exactly what happens right in this story. Rahab sees these men. She recognizes them as being a part of Yahweh's people. And then her heart leaps. Her heart leaps. She says two things to display her faith. The first one was... We heard about your God and I know he's going to give you victory. This is an amazing statement of faith. She has more confidence in God than they do, right? They're sneaking around the place going, how are we ever going to conquer this city? But Rahab's chest is out and she says, I know about your God. He's got this. What a statement of faith. And then she says these words, hear them. This is from the book of Joshua. The Lord your God, he is God. Whoa. Now swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will deal kindly with my house and give me a sure sign that you will save me alive. When you're reading the book of Joshua, these words should knock you off your couch. Let me translate them for you. If this was Bostonian, this is what she is saying. I want in with you guys. I know what Jericho deserves. I know what I deserve. But I am done with my life as a prostitute. I am done with this city and this culture and this way of living. Please tell me that your God will have me. Please tell me that as I welcomed you, your God will welcome me. You feel that? That is gospel wakefulness. There's a pounding on her door. It's the popo. She takes the spies. She runs them up to her roof. She hides them. She comes down to the front door. Here is the moment of truth in her story. This is the great faith that she is recognized for in our sentence today. Rahab, we know the spies came to your house. Where are they? She's got a fork in the road. She doesn't have to say a word. She could just do that, and they'll run up the stairs, and the spies are dead. Instead, here's what she does. She goes, yeah, yeah, the spies came by. And I told them to beat it. This is Jericho. And they went out that gate right there. And if you hurry, you might be able to catch up to them. And so, you know, like bungling cops, they go, all right, all right, we'll go get them. They go running out the front gate of the city into the night. Now, I'll leave it up to you to decide whether or not Rahab's deception was holy. Some people say you cannot get to a good end from sinful means. Other people say this was totally fine. This is a conflict. She's in war. This was a, a good thing for her to do. I tend to land over there. Uh, Joey texted me last winter, said, you got to come play ball with me. It's four and four. I only got three guys, and they're big. So I went up to the Redding Y, and uh, Woburn cop, true, literally takes a shot at my head. It was ugly. Anyway, I'll tell you that other story later. The real story is I can't shoot worth Jack, but Joey has a very sweet jumper and his brother-in-law, whatever he is, can really shoot. So the whole game, I'm just setting back screens for these dudes, right? Now, do I go, hey, hey, psst, psst I'm setting a back screen here. Just want to let you know I'm trying to get my guy free. Of course not. This is conflict. This is war. we got to win this game. I'm not telling them. I'm just hammering them in the back so that they don't know. Deception in times of conflict and war, can be okay, is my point. <laughs> so I am giving Rahab a fist bump, and then I'm going to set a back screen on Boaz in heaven. Um, you can make a call on that. Either way, the police are gone, and Rahab goes up to the roof, and she's going to sneak the spies out the back window, and she says, but first, got to give me a sign. you got to give me a sign. How is this going to work how do I know that God will have mercy on me and my home when the battle starts? It's chaotic. How will you remember this was the house? And the spies in love for her say, "Here's your sign, Rahab. We want you to take a bright red, blood red, scarlet rope. And we want you to nail it to the doorpost of your home, and we want you to hang that rope down." And that sign will be the one that we know. That family is to be spared. Does this sound familiar? A generation before in the land of Egypt, when God's justice was coming, he said, you've got to smear the doorposts of your home, bright, scarlet, red, with the blood of the Lamb, and mercy will come to this house. Fast forward, and this is our only hope in life, that the blood of Christ shed for us, his cross, that symbol is blazed over our souls and our homes. That is God's seal to us, that he will give us mercy. She tacks that thing up there by faith. A few weeks later, the living God, who is not to be trifled with, executes justice on the city. The walls come down, except for Rahab. She is saved She is rescued, and she embeds herself into the family of God. All right, that's the story. Just one question remains. Then why is she still called Rahab the prostitute? Why? Did everybody notice this in the text from the New Covenant? That seems kind of cold, doesn't it? Did this bother anybody in the room? Why are you going to throw that in there? Why don't you just call her Rahab? Why are you going to say Rahab the prostitute? You see her name twice in the letters. And again, in the book of James, she's called Rahab the prostitute. I was listening to a podcast with Denzel Washington, and the guy doing the interview was trying to get him to talk about his past experiences in making movies, and Denzel would not do it. He wouldn't do it. As only Denzel could say it, he was like, I don't look back, man. I only move ahead. I don't look back. If Denzel's right, why are we calling her Rahab the prostitute and looking back at her life? Here's why. Because Rahab's sexuality was not only the darkest area of sin in her life, it was also the place of the lordest, the Lord's brightest redemption. When you read the genealogy of Jesus, the beginning of Matthew's gospel, he's running down all the father's names, right? So-and-so, father of so-and-so, father of so-and-so. Don't take offense at that in your Bible. He's mentioning the names of the families through the names of the father. But then all of a sudden, the pattern changes when he gets to this name here. Is it up here? What's the next one? All right, forget it. It got deleted. You're going to have to trust me on this one. All of a sudden, the pattern changes when it gets to Salmon, real name. Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Look it up in Matthew chapter five. Salmon, the father of Boaz. All of a sudden, an interruption to the by Rahab. When you read that, you're supposed to be stopped in your tracks. Does everyone see what has happened here by the power of the gospel? Rahab, whose sexuality was broken. Hundreds of partners. Serial adultery. Just laid waste by the impurity and the victimization of that sin. She has her sexuality completely redeemed by the grace of God. Rahab becomes a wife and a mother. Rahab is restored to the feminine glories of fidelity and fruitfulness. From this body, you guys, that had been sinned against over and over and over, how unclean was this body? By the grace of God, from this body comes the Christ. Why do we call her Rahab the prostitute? That is not a slight. This is the heart of God on display in her name. This label is a witness to the grace of and the power and the goodness of the gospel. You guys know I've been trying wicked hard to finish this field guide for our family of churches, right? We're at 21 chapters and 85,000 words, and I'm finishing this summer, that's it. In the chapter where I write about how we have learned to walk in the light and confess our sin, I say something like, if you rounded up everybody who's ever been through the life of Seven Mile Road, all of them, it's near 1,000 people now, And you asked, who is the biggest sinner in the history of the church? Who is it? There is no question, no hesitation, hands down, no contest. It would be me. And then I do some confessing of sin and I use some L words. uh, Liar, luster, lack of faith, lazy. And then I go, and those are just the L's. Those are just the L's. Why would I refer to myself by the sin that Jesus has forgiven and is setting me free from. Because His power is shown off in weakness. And His grace is shown off where we are most broken. And we will all be known as crews, and here's the sin that the gospel has overcome. All right, let's land the plane. These are the two applications I wanted you to keep in mind. Here's number one. You are Rahab. You are If you're not, you need to become Rahab. Nobody loves Bostonian culture more than I do. Nobody, right? I mean, we stayed here. We're raising our family here. I'm in. I sat and watched a Bruins playoff game once from behind a pole. I could only see one third of the ice, okay? I love our city. But don't fool yourself. The dark side of our culture is no different than the dark side of Jericho's culture. We think we're better, right? Oh, that Bronze Age stuff. Take a pen, go home, catalog the sins of Canaan, catalog the sins of Boston, you will be able to draw straight lines right across, modernized versions of the same sin, and we are complicit in all of it. Here's the good news, hear me, you are loved by God regardless He has provided a means of escape for every Bostonian. He has sent me to you right now to be just like the spies and to say, come on home. You are welcome. Here's the sign and mercy is yours. You are Rahab. If not, you need to become Rahab. And then the last one is this. Our churches must be built for Rahab's. Do you believe that these cities are filled with men and women, teenagers, just like Rahab, outside the community right now, who need to become a part of this gospel grace? They just need somebody to plant some churches, to live some lives that will love and gospel them. Love and gospel We tend to give up on one of those. Let's not be the churches that refuse to love the Rahabs. I'm begging you that if the Rahabs come in, they will not feel judged. They will not feel like we're looking funny of them. They will not feel like we're going, whoa, that's a worse sinner than anybody in here. But that our arms would be open like those spies and say, come to the same place we have found grace, the cross of Jesus Christ. We love you and we gospel you. Some churches refuse to bring sermons like this to people who are in need of them. In our commonwealth, we are being told, you will go to prison if you counsel people toward sexual redemption, sexual purity, sexual obedience. If we love the Rahabs, we will be bold in showing them their sin, showing them the holiness of God, showing them the humaneness of God, and calling them out of this city into the city of God. Let's live lives and build churches that work like that. All right, let's pray. Father, thanks for the stories of these saints. They are like Red Bull in our veins. If Rahab could be welcomed, if this woman was cleansed by your grace, she became grandmother to Jesus. You could do it for every single one of us in this room, full stop, no questions asked. So I pray that nobody here would miss the gospel for one more second. And I do pray that Joey's church, Jeremiah's church, our church, would have story after story after story of the grace of God. Hear our prayer for dissatisfaction, conviction, opportunity, and wakefulness for the fame of your son. I pray with confidence. Amen. Amen. All right, thanks for listening to the Word.